Hello, and welcome to the Ever Widening Circles podcast, designed to give you more joy, less fear, and no end to the brighter future. This podcast will give you a fresh perspective on the world around you. We want you to hear from thought leaders in a wave of progress well underway around the globe that we're calling a conspiracy of goodness. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles. Since 2014, we've been restoring people's hope in the future by writing thousands of articles about a huge wave of goodness going on. And along the way, we've been having incredible conversations with thought leaders that we're now sharing. Today, I'm going to chat with Rabbi Daniel Cohen, who has some amazing thoughts on legacy and living a life of impact, large and small. He uses some terrific timeless stories and strategies to guide us into making our days and our hours count. You know, Rabbi Cohen, I'm so delighted to chat with you here. We have a funny origin story in our relationship, but I've probably done a real, a real limited job introducing you. Tell me how you would introduce yourself. Wow. First of all, thank you very much for having me on your show. It's an honor. And we do have a great origin story without giving too many details. Our good friend, Brian Kripcher, certainly a very positive, upbeat, life-affirming person. So it's no wonder that he introduced me to such a nice, sweet, life-affirming woman like you. So, uh, oh. <laughs> Well, you know what I always say, and I'm sure people who are listening to this podcast get this, you know, people that are nice recognize each other across a room. <laughs> That's true. You can pay me later for what I just said. That's fine. <laughs> anyway, it's called the Mutual Admiration Society. But, you know, thank God, I'm great. I, you know, consider myself first and foremost a, a husband and a father. You know, thank God, actually, we were blessed with uh, six daughters, my wife, uh, Diane, and I. And just a few days ago, we actually had our second grandson. So we are extremely blessed. Thank God. That's what's most important is, is family. And I also serve as a rabbi of a synagogue in Stanford, Connecticut, a large modern Orthodox synagogue, close to 600 families. Um, been here about 15 years. And really love the community. It's a community that's very much rooted in tradition, but very relevant, very open, non-judgmental, and really try to help people identify, you know, what's inside of them that they want to help share with the world so that everybody feels a sense of engagement with their spiritual life and feel they're making a difference in the world. And then the other piece of what I do is I really write and speak a lot. And that's really what you refer to, which is this notion of how do we all not just wait to moments of crisis to get serious about life, but how do we stay tapped into the highest frequency of the gift of every day and trying to make a difference um, in every encounter that we have? That's it. And I don't know if you've been noticing this in, in your circles, but we're recording this interview about six months into the pandemic. And I've noticed that in my circles... People seem to be paying attention to the small moments. You know, I just drove home 15 minutes out, 15 minutes back to give my daughter a hug before she left for three weeks. I would have never done that before the pandemic. <laughs> I'd like to say I would have, but I wouldn't. What, you know, what are you seeing as far as people, people's priorities shifting? Let's start there today. Well, I would say that, you know, before the pandemic occurred, a lot of times, and this is natural, we kind of live in a world in which we're not paying attention to the little things. We're moving around so quickly. We may feel that we're accomplishing a lot and we can check off the boxes. I did this. I traveled here. I moved there. But at the end of the day, 
we're really losing sight sometimes of what's most significant. So this pandemic, I think for many people, took those things in life that were certain and helped them realize that they're really uncertain. And the things in life that they felt were truly anchors or no longer anchors. And they're searching for, I would say, eternal wisdom to help them navigate a world which is very confusing, filled with fear, and trying to find the positive in the world that's confronting them. And one of the messages that I really try to share with people is that we have two choices. We can either just try to survive this moment, or we can thrive in this moment. We can just lament the darkness, or we can increase the light. I know this fits exactly with what you're about, but the truth is we can't control the world around us. We can only control the world that's in front of us. And every moment that we spend worrying about the past or being anxious about the future is a moment lost to actually try to make a difference in the world. That is just just a wonderfully simplified way of thinking about the choice we make every day. Every minute of every day, we've got that choice to decide what to give our attention to. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. there's something very, uh, I would say, sacred about that. And Moses says that at the very end of his life, this idea that, see, I give before you today the choice between life and death, darkness and light. And then he says something amazing. I mean, this is 3,500 years ago. He says, choose life. So the question is, if I have the choice between life and death, of course, I'm going to choose life. Well, the answer is oftentimes we don't choose life. We allow life to wash over us and we're not living life intentionally. We're just living life kind of just moment to moment, allowing the world around us to have us flow in a direction without leading a life in a counter current way that enables us to really try to, you know, take obstacles and turn them into opportunities and take burdens and turn them into blessings. Because that's the choice that we have. And that's the power that we have, which is really to bring heaven down to earth in any moment. I got goosebumps head to toe with your last minute of uh, what you articulated there. It is This is so true. You know, I uh, people can't see. Uh, Rabbit Cohen and I can see each other for this recording, but we're only recording the audio. And I was holding up the – I've read his book. He has the most amazing book. It's called What Will They Say? What Will They Say About You When You're Gone? Creating a Life of Legacy. It has a, a nice, beautiful pocket watch on the front. And I was showing – Rabbi Cohen, how much it's dog-eared and how many... Impressive, thank you. I've got whole whole sides of pages all scrolled in annotations. So I wanted to take where exactly where we left off a second ago and start going through some really key points that I, of course, I didn't notice as anything special in all my annotation, but are really special now as we try and go into winter and the pandemic and a lot of other chaos that's going on. So write what you just said. Let's talk about a line in here where you wrote, and I underlined, urgent matters pass within an hour, but important matters last for an eternity. Talk about the difference between urgent and important. So when I think about urgent, I sometimes think about, again, those things that in our perspective, you know, again, it's something we think is important because we have to get done. But I always quote, there's a wonderful book by Robert Gruning, I believe is his name. And it's called Time in the Art of Living. I forgot his last name exactly. But he says, take the moment in which you're in right now and imagine how you're going to remember this moment down the road. What are we doing right now that is worthy of future memory? And I'll give you an example. What are we doing right now that is worthy of future memory? I have, like everybody does, to-do lists. And I can easily just spend my day checking them off. But I really try to project backwards and say, at the end of the day, What are the things that are really going to mean the most to me? 
And what are the things that are going to be most enduring? And I'll give you an example. Like, I'm busy today. I mean, obviously, we're all busy. And I said something to somebody else who's a younger father of daughters. And I said, you know, one of the things that has always been valuable to me, because sometimes it's hard to get your child's attention, is to go for walks with them. I find that I go for a walk. I don't have to say much, but usually they end up opening up. Their phones aren't there. And I said to myself today, like, I'm busy, but I texted one of my daughters. said, what time do you want to go for a walk? Now, I'm sure that I could use that half hour, hour to do what I would call more urgent things. But I said, you know what? At the end of the day, I'm going to be most proud of the fact that I spent 45 minutes with somebody that I love and the other stuff is really not that important or not that significant. So it does, by the way, one point is to distinguish between urgent and important takes time. It's really important if we want to be able to focus on what's important is to take time at the beginning of every day, even 15 minutes, and at the end of every day to say, what did I do today that is worthy of future memory? And what can I do tomorrow that truly will be something that will help contribute to my long-term relationships with those that are most important to me? And it doesn't mean that every moment of every day we're going to be involved in those things. We can't. But at least make sure that those are a priority and a prism through which we evaluate how we spend our time. Mm. That is so true. And, you know, I've noticed um, a lot of people who listen to this podcast know that I've been a dentist for 25 years and I'm plopping down next to every patient I see now and saying, so tell me what what has new meaning that you never would have appreciated. What's the gift in the pandemic for you? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people will say things like you just said, like now I make sure to take a walk every day with this person. Or I had someone tell me that they they uh, are they started cooking the Sabbath dinner on Friday nights, and then they play poker with their teenagers until midnight every every Friday. <laughs> and other people are instead of snowboarding, they're they're riding down mountainsides in their bikes with their seventy year old dad. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely. I would say again, it's a you know one door closes. I think people, thank God, are taking advantage of the new doors that are opening. The big challenge, again, one day and hopefully very soon we're going to get a vaccine. We'll have more therapy and we'll look back on this time. And I mean, I had my daughter and son-in-law and grandson living with us for four months. I mean, at the very beginning of this, and I never thought that would happen. But again, the challenge is, is as we move forward from this time, you know, how do we maintain the discipline of being focused on those moments which truly create the memories that will live for a lifetime? You know, one of the uh, quotes that I, I have marked that just seems to speak to this is we must live every day as if we believe in the world to come. Mm, that was deep. Oh, yeah, that- <laughs> I've got, let's see, I've got seven stars by it. Oh, my seven stars. Okay, well, that's not my own. I mean, a lot of this is I try to glean wisdom, but that was from a mm-hmm. rabbi who passed away a number of years ago in Israel, Rabbi Noah Weinberg. And you know, what he really was saying, it's not his idea. Again, it's a very spiritual concept is that, you know, are we living for the things which are transient? Are we living for the things that are eternal? When I say the world to come there, I don't mean I'm doing things in this world simply to get to a better place. What I mean by that is, am I doing things in this world that actually are nourishing my soul and my spirit and my relationships? Or am I doing things that are just filling up my body? And at the end of the day, you know, I'll talk to my kids about this when they were younger when anybody does, this fits very well with what I call the conspiracy of goodness that you're speaking about. When you do a kind deed, when you volunteer, when you help somebody, there's something inside of you that really feels good. And that's something that lasts forever. 
the goodness that's created inside of you. When I have a hamburger that's really tasty, it feels good for about 15 minutes. And then I think, oh, why did I eat that burger? I mean, it was nice. But what I'm speaking about here is make decisions not for you know, fleeting pleasures, but for, I would say, eternal purpose. And if the truth is, we're going to feel much, much richer and more fulfilled in life when we're trying to fill up our souls, not just our bodies with those things that might give us fleeting pleasure. So that's the idea behind it. It's lovely. It's so lovely. Do you know, it gets to something that, um, that I'm worried that I have been worried about and that I'm speaking a lot about is this notion that we've got to restore our faith in the future. A hundred percent. I mean, I was talking with a friend of mine who's a pastor today. We had lunch together. He's a close friend, Greg Dahl, Presbyterian minister in Darien. And he actually just came back from a week of silence at a monastery. He went away for a week. I said, no talking. He said, no talking. Three meals a day. I mean, that was it. I've never done that before. But I said to him, so what's in your heart that kind of you glean from this? And one of the things he talked about is kind of the importance of restoring people's hope and faith. And we're living in a world where it's so easy, unfortunately, to get down, to be in a place of negativity, of darkness. And I believe strongly, and I think, you know, that's the advantage and benefit of having a belief in a higher power in God in an instant. In an instant, things can be better. COVID can be gone. Things can change. And, you know, we were talking before the show about what motivates me. One of the things that motivates me is I believe that every moment that I take a breath, God is saying that he loves me. God is saying that he believes in me. There's not a single human being. When you take a breath, it says at the very beginning of Genesis that God breathes into each and every one of us the breath of life. And every time that we take a breath, God is saying, I believe in you. I care about you. I'm with you. I'll give you a story, by the way, that touched me from, it was a 93-year-old man who recovered from COVID this past summer. Amazing. And on his way out of the hospital, he was given a bill for 5000 whatever it is, let's say $5,000 for the day's ventilator, the use of a ventilator for one day. And he started to cry. And the doctor said to him, why are you crying? Are you crying because you can't pay for the ventilator? He said, I have plenty of money to pay. But I'm crying because I've breathed God's air for 93 years for free. And until now, I never really appreciated how much one day's breath is worth. How much do I owe God? Now, if a person lives with that every day, our lives are transformed. Because in every moment, God is saying there's something. God doesn't give us life by accident. He gives us life because he believes there's something for me to accomplish. So as tired as I might be in the morning, When I wake up, I say, not only thank God I'm alive, but thank God that you believe in me and that there's some higher purpose for why I'm here today. And that's a very motivating, uplifting and inspiring way to approach a new day. Mm. You know, and I think that's one of the things that the our online lives are are leaving us perplexed about. That our online, you know, I remember, I, I like to say that we were, you and I both remember a time before the internet when we lived our lives. Oh, yeah, that's right. You mean in oh, yeah. 1940s? <laughs> well, no, you know, even well, most millennials yeah. remember know, a time yeah. before the internet. And most of us remember that there were, there was a giant rule in living. It was that we keep our personal life and our working life really separate. Remember when that was like a real serious yeah. thing that you 
I do. But now we've got this online life that's sort of ruining the other two. If you, if you, if you let it, I mean, you got to really fight to find the goodness on the internet. And it, and what you were just talking about reminds me of how each of us has this opportunity in our daily lives, working or personal to affirm what you were just saying. Even if you're not a religious person, every single one of us has had a moment an exchange with a stranger that we knew there was something bigger happening between us. And I, I've got a little spot from the book that I absolutely love it. You get these really great toolboxes periodically Mm -hmm. through the book. Rabbi will stop and he'll create this little box and he gives you like three tools. And in this particular toolbox, you you talk about reframing. And I love this. I've used this countless times, probably a thousand times since I read your book a year and a half ago. You say, (laughs) my parents always told me that taking out the garbage wasn't simply bringing the trash bins to the street, but an opportunity to honor them. Serving isn't a burden, but a blessing. Reframe two acts of service in your life. How does that change your motivation? And I know we all have these really mindless tasks that we gnash our teeth through. And ever since I read that, I can do that with almost anything. That's amazing. That's inspiring to me. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to add one more little thing to this because I, I know it might trigger a good story from you. So I have a sister-in-law who I call one of the joyful ones. Mm-hmm. When I read this, I thought, ah, oh, that's what Katie does. You know, there are these rare people in this, in this world that will sing through doing the worst tasks possible. They mm-hmm. just sing. They're always the one who says, Oh, but look at it on the bright side. You know, look at it this way. Well, they're rare. They're seemingly rare every day, but Katie is one of the joyful ones. And this is what she's doing, Rabbi. I think she's reframing even the worst jobs into service of others because that's in her heart. Tell me whatever that bit of conversation brings up. I mean, it's a very, again, spiritual idea. I believe, and this is something what one of the prophets says, is that the entire world is God's sanctuary. The entire world is a place to reveal some hidden spark and some hidden light. And actually, you know, it's interesting. One of the holiest acts in the Bible was when the uh, temple and the priests, they would get the guy who takes the garbage out in the temple was one of the highest acts of the highest acts in the, in the, in the service. And the point was, was that in Michelangelo, oh, excuse me, uh, Martin Luther King said this you know, beautifully, that whether it's the street sweeper or anybody else, as long as you're doing it for a higher power, it becomes something which is holy. And to me, you know, that's really to a certain degree what life is all about because no act, and I think about this, if somebody asks me to make a phone call or to help out or to clean the dishes or, you know, to help out around the house, I actually believe that that's something that I was meant to hear in that moment. And in that moment, the greatest way that I can bring God's light to the world is by being other-centered, by being giving, if I'm in the process of helping somebody else in any other way, that's literally the way that I'm kind of unlocking some new light in the world that has never been revealed before for the history. And I lead my life that way. And that's really the way we should be thinking about it. So I don't view anything as menial. I really view it as filled with meaning if it's to help serve somebody else. Oh, that's nice. You know, and, 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 and that's this meaningful. Oh, that's, that's lovely. Thanks. I don't know where I got that one from, but it's very true. I mean, and part of it, I think, also stems from leading a life of calling, leading a life of purpose. 
most people in the world today, it's all about what do I want? What do I need? It's all about does the world fit in with my view of the world and what's comfortable for me? Leading a life which is more other-centered and saying, not what can I do to help somebody else? What does God want of me? What is my purpose today? How can I help uplift the world around me? If our conversations revolve around not as us at the center of the world, but as everyone else at the center of our universe, as God at the center of the universe, then I really feel a sense that no matter what task I'm asked to do, I'm really just asked to help reveal some light in a place of darkness and healing in a place of hope. Somebody actually said to me, you know, when you talk about people singing, we used to sing a lot in our in our home and, and singing is a great way. I, I know those people too, like, oh, this is fine. Let's have them, you know, they're, they're there just to like make everything joyous. It's interesting, yeah. a fellow, I'm privileged and I guess it's not easy, but I officiated a lot of funerals and that's one of the things as a rabbi. So I have to be with families, you know, for... 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and I'll say to them before the funeral, tell me about the memories that continue to inspire you. What are the values that you hope to continue to emulate? And I remember a man who grew up outside of France, he told me this story. And until this day, his religion is very important to him. And I said, why is that so important to you? And he said, well, my mother would always make sure to get kosher food when we were growing up. And we lived outside of France, and she would always outside of Paris. She take a she take a she take a bus into Paris to get the meat. But one time the um, buses were on strike. But my mother walked to go get the meat, and I went with her. And I still remember. She says he said it's like sixty years ago. It was pouring rain, and my mother was carrying these heavy bags. And all along the way, she was singing because she was so happy that even in the rain, she could fulfill God's will. And she says, I'll never forget that picture of the joy she had. I'll give you one other example. You know, I call this sometimes, I was a roadie for God. My dad is a rabbi, but he also is a musician. He's a drummer. And he started a band in the 1970s in Atlanta. It's called Matzah. Now in the 1970s, there was a band called Bread. So what does a rabbi do when he starts a band? He calls it Matzah, which is the unleavened bread. (laughs) I used to go with my father to help him unpack the drums. And, you know, it was like on a Saturday night, he'd take me to a gig. It was him and some other people. But I got such joy out of helping my dad share this music. And I called it a roadie for God. Like I literally felt like my dad was on a mission. But I enjoyed it because I knew that it was for a holy purpose. I was spending time with my dad. And those are the memories that to me, are so inspiring. When somebody can take something that could seem as a burden, all I'm doing is I'm packing up equipment in the back of a car. But I knew that I was with my dad. I knew he was going there to spread some joy and light, and it took on a whole new meaning. So that reminds me of a great story that I love in the book that goes in that direction. It's the it's where you were talking about that we're a link to the past and a bridge to the future. So I'm sure the story you just told about helping your dad with something rather menial, you know, unloading and loading and all that sort of stuff, though, just the way you tell the story, you're indicating that that was, that's a link to your past. And I'm sure it was a bridge to the future with how you interact with your own children. Um, Give me some Give me some examples of what you're seeing people, maybe some coping skills that have come up that you've seen with people you're, you are working with or that are inspiring. Um, in terms of the linkage to the past and the future, you're saying? I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that <laughs> yeah. everyone 
kind of drumming up old family traditions or creating new ones. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, it's interesting because with the turn towards the virtual now, there's a lot that people are doing where Mm -hmm. there is new avenues for people to share, whether it's stories or to connect with relatives or to learn about even new family members that to a certain degree, they never really spent the time talking to and understanding. And I've seen this particularly, by the way, and this goes back, unfortunately, to cases with funerals. You know, in the Jewish world, there's something called a shiva. So shiva is obviously paying attention during that week of mourning. And people have created virtual living rooms. Like, let's say, for example, I was sitting in a virtual shiva room and, you know, somebody will pop on and said, I want to tell you this story. It's like a relative. There are kids that are sitting in there. They'd have no idea about the life of their mother and their father from 40 years ago. But somebody pops on and shares a story from another country, but is only able to be there because of Zoom. And they're giving the family new meaning about the person. And then they're learning about them and now being able to carry that forward. And if not for this pandemic, again, God forbid should we have the pandemic, but if not for this new portal that was opened up of communication, that identity and that dimension of that person would never have been revealed because who's going to pick up the phone and call or write a letter, but now it's being opened up. So when you talk about, I would say, creating a link between past and future, the whole advent of the virtual world, which people are now participating in, has opened up new meanings for that. Wow. And I've never thought about that, but that is a great... That's such a great story of how the internet can be used as a tool to build things or a tool to demolish things. It's like a hammer. We can either build or demolish with it. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think that um, this isn't exactly related to your question, but if I just segue a little bit into, you know, the conspiracy of goodness and the internet, we started something. We're big fans, at least in our community, of an app called WhatsApp. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. Yeah. So there are a lot of people, of course that have different needs during this time, particularly, you know, in the early months when they couldn't leave their house, they needed something picked up. We have a lot of seniors that are homebound. And the question is, you know, let's say I'm going to CVS and there's prescriptions that I can pick up, but there's also a man in his eighties or a woman who can't get to CVS. So how do you link those two? So we started something called the, it's called MMM, the Making Mitzvah Moments WhatsApp group. It was actually featured on WABC in New York, the Making Mitzvah Moments WhatsApp group. And it's a group of around 60 to 70 people that all tagged on. And instantaneously, what they do is they share opportunities to help. So what's happening is somebody says, I know somebody who, you know, can't get out of their house or somebody needs this picked up. All of a sudden, in real time, somebody chimes and says, I'll take care of this. Or here's somebody that I saw. And it really has... If not for the pandemic and if not for technology, all of these kind deeds would not have been generated. And it's just amazing what comes up when you pull people together because they do want to help each other. But the challenge is when people haven't communicated in groups to be able to mobilize all these uh, new acts of kindness. That is such a great, a great window into possibility of communities that could be started all over. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, there's been a real emerging of, of people to mobilize each other through technology across the globe, across communities to help each other for sure. That brings me to a little spot that I noted in the book. I'm very interested in missed potential. 
<laughs> I don't know. About it bugs what? me. Potential? I, I don't like this potential. I love that story because it's making the most of, of our collective potential. So there's a great little part in the book where you talk about all kinds of ways to, to really pay attention to the legacy you're leaving, which we're going to get into. But you talk about celebrate the small victories. And when we die, we won't be judged against someone else's life, but against our own potential. Did we do the best we could with the hand we were dealt? To me, that's you know probably one of the most haunting, but also one of the most inspiring ideas. And what that means is, is that every single human being that exists within the world has some unique purpose to accomplish in this world every single day that is different than yesterday and that is different than tomorrow. And at the very end of our lives is an idea that God will show us two films. One film is entitled Lord of the Rings 1. Just kidding. One film is entitled How You Led Your Life, and the other film is entitled How You Could Have Led Your Life. And the difference between those will determine the amount of pleasure and joy that we feel at that moment. And we live in a world where we oftentimes are, I would say, deluded into thinking that our value is determined by how well we measure up to somebody else. You'll feel happy. You'll feel successful if you have this, if you have that, if you look like this. That is the most counterfeit path towards pleasure. And most people in the world fall for it. And that's why they're depressed. Because at the end of the day, their soul knows the truth. The soul knows the truth. A lot of times people don't listen to it until a moment of crisis when the things that they are surrounding themselves, which are artificially giving them happiness, are no longer there. And as somebody goes through life, as a person gets older or confronts reality, they really begin to see what real value is. So the more that we can be inspired to invest in our lives in those, I would say, eternal pleasures that are uniquely gifted to us to realize in our life, right? I'm not expected to be the greatest musician. I'm not expected to, again, whatever it is, I'm expected to be the best, my name, Donnie Cohen, Daniel Cohen, that I can be with the talents that I have, with the opportunities that are in front of me. And if we can look at ourselves every day and said, I did the best that I can to realize the divine potential that God gave me. That's all really that we're asked to do. We're not asked for perfection. We're asked to be the best. I'd like to take a break from our chat and let you know about a company that I'm sure will put a spring in your step, Allbirds. They're a New Zealand-based shoe company that's changing the game when it comes to footwear, creating products that people feel great in and feel good about. Allbirds is proving that good design, sustainability, and comfort don't have to be mutually exclusive. Now, not only are Allbirds shoes high quality, comfortable, and stylish, but their mission goes way past footwear. It's something really to be proud of. They strive for a sustainable future through their use of planet-friendly materials like merino wool and eucalyptus trees to create their shoes, aiming to leave the environment cleaner than when they found it. Allbirds believes in the power of natural materials and their potential to transform ecosystems. They're looking way beyond carbon neutrality, which means eventually Allbirds will be carbon negative. This is such a grand, great goal that we can all appreciate. It's just the kind of company that ever widening circles loves. 
We're an Allbirds affiliate, which means that when you use the link provided in the show notes down below for your purchase, then you're supporting ever-widening circles and the good work that we're trying to do here. We get a small commission and are able to keep proving it's still an amazing world. So support the planet and ever-widening circles by purchasing from Allbirds using the link in the show notes. So I think that that is a great little line of thought to lead us into this concept of whether we're the horse or the jockey, Rabbi. Yes. Give us uh, some notions to think about today and forever on that. Sure. So each one of us really has two components to our humanity. One is, I would say, the earthly um, part of who we are, which is really driven by what feels good and kind of immediate pleasures that we have. Going back to that burger, you might think I'm hungry. I don't know why I'm going back to that burger. But this idea of the things that give us like an immediate thrill or pleasure that we enjoy. And there's another part of us, which we all have inside of us, which is that desire to lead a meaningful life, to do acts of kindness, to have strong relationships. That I'll call the soul or whatever you want to call it. And the question in life is, the mystics explain, is who leading who? The jockey is the soul. It's our higher consciousness. It's our desire to have a life of meaning. The horse is the body, those things which are giving us immediate satisfaction. And the question in life is, is the jockey leading the horse or is the horse leading the jockey? And are we leading a life where literally we're running, running, running just simply for the next pleasure or the next thrill but we're actually not paying attention to the jockey who's saying, you know what, but that's not going to give you real meaning in life. That's not going to make the world a better place. And the challenge in life, and this is really what, you know, I would say even doing kind deeds and being more thoughtful is it's fortifying the jockey in all of our lives, the higher sense of who we want to be to direct our actions on a daily basis. Again, when somebody hits a moment of crisis, they wake up and say, wait a second, the horse was about to go off a cliff. I can't believe that I spent the past three years binge watching all this TV and not paying attention to the people that I love. And I'd walk in from the home and I'd be sitting on one side of the room with my phone and my daughter would be sitting and now she's going off to college and I wasted all that time. But you know what? Rather than lament that, start now and say, you know what? Let me be very intentional to make sure that I'm actually leading the life where the jockey's leading the horse. I'm in control of my future. I'm in control of my relationships. I'm in control of my time and I'm not allowing my time to control me. Okay. This is, we, we can't get this close to this, <laughs> this hot potato without going somewhere new. Okay. Okay. Here you go. What you just said, I'm not sure you're aware of this, but I published a book on on September 1st called Happiness is an Option. And nine days later, Netflix put out a big documentary called The Social Dilemma. Oh, you don't want me to see that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's it's huge. It's so huge. It's it's a wonderful documentary for a whole lot of reasons. And there's a flaw at the end, which we'll talk about. But for a whole lot of reasons, it's an amazing thing that I really think every human being on the planet should look at. It's, it's really how we got here with this mess of the internet and its negative influence on our lives. And in the documentary, it's very apparent that the internet has become an attention machine. That's all that matters there is how content creators and social media and so forth can get and keep our attention. So the people in the documentary are the actual inventors of the internet. They're the guy that invented the like button on Facebook. 
or the Mm -hmm. algorithm that serves you your next YouTube video. And in one part, a guy that was the president of Pinterest for five years says, there he was swimming in technology all day long. And he would find himself going into the pantry when he should be with his three and four-year-old kids. He was so addicted to this online situation that he would be he would be in the pantry after eight hour workday or ten, scrolling away and, and still looking at the internet. So back to what you said, the horse versus the jockey. Yeah. Tell me if you have any thoughts on on this addiction that we have to technology and maybe it's the negative news cycle, maybe it's just what you said in social media about this comparison without context. Tell me how we how we get out of some of that mess in our online lives. Um, I would say whether you're Jewish or not, observe the Sabbath in some way. In other words, take a 25-hour hiatus from the internet. In other words, it does take discipline. In other words, in the Jewish faith, at least in the practice of observancy, come Friday night, I turn off my phone, I turn off the computer, and people know that if they need to reach me, they'll come to my house, they'll figure it out. And it is liberating. The world will go on without you. The world will go on without you, whether you watch Fox, whether you watch CNN, whether you post on Facebook. Take a vacation and be firm about it. I mean, there are people literally that get nervous. They'll start shaking if they, if they, I mean, actually somebody once compared, I mean, this is a little bit dramatic, but I'll say it since you're getting a little very intent here about this. You know, the snake in the Garden of Eden, you know, it's like enticement. That's the modern phone. In other words, you put it in your pocket. Everybody's got to check it just to make sure that is it buzzing? Is it buzzing? And the truth is you could have the most important person in your life across from you trying to talk to you. And all of a sudden you're checking your emails when who cares? You're getting something from Buzzfeed. I mean, it's ridiculous. So I would encourage people. You may not be able to start with 25 hours, but take, let's say Friday night. Okay. And say from 6 p.m. until 6 a.m., I am not going to be on the internet. I'm putting my phone away. You know, many years ago, I used to have my phone as my alarm clock upstairs when I woke up. But my wife said, why are you doing that? You know what happens? As soon as the phone goes on, you're checking it. You're looking at it. And the truth is, is it becomes almost, again, something you really don't want to do. So what we do is I keep it on the main floor. And then when I go upstairs, it could be 9.30, 10 o'clock, 10.30. That's it. It's done. And I think that the first step in not being as addicted is to take a vacation and just to really kind of let it go. And then you'll find that life will go on without it. And you'll actually find that you really are able to have a much richer life. I also am a big fan of, I said this earlier, of taking walks, going outside, leaving your phone at home. Take a half hour. Don't take your phone with you. Just enjoy Mm -hmm. nature. It's beautiful outside. Enjoy the company of somebody. So I think at the end of the day, we can talk about it from here till tomorrow, but the practice of unplugging is in and of itself the first step towards being liberated from the addiction and the distraction, quite frankly, of all the internet um, that's there. Uh, That's, and I think you've put it in a beautiful way that seems very, um, very doable. I think sometimes we bite off more than we can chew, but You know, that is a very, very nice, simple way to go forward. Now, there's something else in the book I don't want to finish our conversation without talking about because I love this. One of the things, this toolbox in this book is very interesting. Here's a great one. Spend five minutes every night identifying two conscious choices you made during the day. 
evaluate whether you were the jockey or the horse. Analyze how you can do better tomorrow. I love that. Um, so one of the big things I talk a lot about on Everwhiting Circles is pay attention what you're giving your attention to. Mm-hmm. This will save us from the, the craziness on the internet. This will, <laughs> this will, this will set us free if we pay attention what we're giving our attention to. I love this two conscious choices. Give me just a little bit about that. You know, I think, again, we actually are making so many meaningful choices, or sometimes it's non-choices, that during the course of the day, I mean, let's say, for example, again, you're in the supermarket, and you're checking out. This is like very simple. Do you engage and see how the person is doing? Or do you just look at your phone the whole time and just give them the money as if it's a robot on the other side? Now, that may seem trivial, but for that person who literally for five hours is there just helping somebody, your engagement with them is a way to maybe make a difference in that person's life. And that to me is a small choice, but a choice that can actually determine, you know, whether or not they feel empowered or elevated or not. I'll give you another choice. You're driving your car. How many of us are driving our car? And maybe there's somebody who cuts us off. Now we have a choice in that moment. We have a choice in that moment to allow that person to park in our head for the next hour and when we get to the next place, someone says, how you doing? You won't believe what happened. I was almost cut off in the car. And that person has absolutely no idea that they potentially cut us off. They're singing away, but we've allowed that. We've made a choice to allow that person to park in our heads. And then it disrupts the person who then, who we've spoken to says, oh yeah, let me tell you what happened to me. Now you came in there, hopefully you, you should have come in there to lift that person up. And all you do, all you did was you brought that person down. Now, those are conscious choices. But if we spend a few minutes at the end of every day saying, who did I interact with? And here's, I think, an important thing. Everybody that we interact with should leave our interaction feeling better about themselves than they did before we interacted with them. There's some people that you go into a room and you walk out and they're feeling much better. And there are other people that they walk into a room and they leave and all they've done is taken the air out of the joy in the room. And if our goal is really to make people feel good about themselves and to lift people up, then we are guaranteed, God willing, to truly make a difference in people's lives. And those are the small choices. But again, that involves a consciousness of really reframing the opportunities that are in front of me. You know, I actually believe I'll just conclude with this, that if I'm on a particular line in a supermarket... I'm on that line for a reason. And I'm on that line because there's somebody there that I need to speak to or that I need to talk to. And that's a really important way to uh, to lead a life. That is lovely. Well, the book is full of stories like this. We didn't get to the story of the guy in the meatpacking plant. There's a lot going on. <laughs> oh, I love that story. <laughs> okay, nice. we're have to get the book to, to read all the stories here. What will they say about you when you are gone? Creating a life of legacy. So Rabbi Cohen, I always like to make sure that people can get connect with your work in some way. Where's the best way for people to connect with you? Uh, the best way is to go onto my website, www.rabbidanielcohen.com. There's information there. There's videos there. There's books. You know, I do a lot of speaking. You can email me directly. I'm happy to, uh, to be of support in any way that I can. Great. And then we always end on one question. Okay. So um, ever widening circles, our little tagline underneath the words ever widening circles is it is still an amazing world. 
So tell me what makes you realize it's still an amazing world on a daily basis. Well, speaking to you. <laughs> I mean, when I see people like you who really continue to maintain their optimism, their faith, and focus on all the good that people are doing, that to me is very inspiring. That is my answer, and that is my official answer. No joke. You are amazing. All right. Well, this has been just a lovely, lovely chat. And I didn't even get through half of the sticky notes in this book. So I'm going to have you back again and we're going to continue. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. For more information about the guest's work, Rabbi Cohen's work, and everything we talked about, the subjects and links to his book and so forth, you can check out the show notes down below. And as always, dive into the ever-widening circles universe by visiting ewc.co. And if there are students in your life, turn them loose on our education website at ewced.com. Really, really a lovely group of people we're talking to on the podcast. Come back every week. You're going to feel elevated. And folks like Rabbi Khan are going to point the way to a new era that I believe is opening. Thanks so much. For more information about our guests' work or the subjects we mentioned, check out the show notes for the links. And as always, dive into the ever-widening circles universe by visiting us at ewc.co. That's short for ever-widening circles, ewc.co. If there are students in your life, turn them loose on the education site that we have at ever-widening circles. You can find that at ewced.com. And subscribe to the ever-widening circles app. People are always asking me what they can do to help. This is the number one thing you can do to help our efforts. For less than a dollar a month, you will have the antidote to the daily news right in the palm of your hand with our app. And that $1 will help us send a signal to content creators that people will support positive content. And big news, (laughs) we will be hosting the first Conspiracy of Goodness Summit on October 4th. You can get tickets to that and be able to enjoy the recorded program thereafter at cogsummit.com. Cog is short for Conspiracy of Goodness. C-O-G Summit, S-U-M-M-I-T dot com. I hope all these connections to goodness and progress carry you through your week and you start finding all that joy and wonder we've been talking about.